You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. What's on the table when we claim that a newly discovered text came from a biblical author? To answer that question might take an investigation that spans the Roman Empire, desert monasteries, New York City apartments, the academic publish industry, and the libraries and universities that change hands during wars and elections, and all sorts of other historical events that intervene between us and that glorious first century. Such a story is before us today, and Jeffrey S. Smith's and Brett C. Landau's recent book, The Secret Gospel of Mark, is going to show us just how complicated and sometimes how weird the world of textual criticism can be. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome them to the show. Brent and Jeff, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Brent, this book uh, tells a story that doesn't follow a direct path through centuries, so let's start with the scene that opens the book. It's 1960, we're in New York City at a very particular academic conference, and a very particular scholar named Morton Smith announces a shocking new discovery. What does he unveil, and what's the reaction in the room? and in the newspapers and anywhere else that's relevant in 1960. Okay, yeah, so this this is happening in December of 1960. Morton Smith is, uh, is a, a bright and e- uh, equally provocative biblical scholar. And uh, this is at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, but most of the kind of individual sessions were going on in sort of small classrooms. Uh, But this is at the Horace Mann Auditorium, which is a very, very large, uh, uh, you know, place for public lectures uh, uh, on the Columbia University campus. And uh, the reason that it was uh, that they reserved such a big venue was because of the um, uh, kind of shocking nature of what Smith was uh, announcing he had discovered. So he he claimed to have discovered in 1958 at a uh, monastery named Marsaba outside of Jerusalem, a manuscript of a letter of Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria was a uh, well-known ancient Christian scholar. Uh, And the letter's interesting, but what uh, really, you know, took the breath away of people who, who were there was the fact that this letter of Clement purported to have within it a excerpt from a secret version of the Gospel of Mark. So basically a version of the Gospel of Mark that was uh, uh, not for sort of uh, general readers, general Christians, but only for the most spiritually sophisticated Christians. And in this story, uh, in this fragment from the secret Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus uh, heals a young man, uh, um, brings him back from the dead, and it says that the young man looked at Jesus and loved him and begged Jesus to stay with him. Jesus stays with him for six days in the young man's house. He, he's apparently uh, rich and has his own house. And uh, after six days, the uh, uh, Jesus tells the young man to come to him at night, uh, and the man comes uh, wearing nothing but a linen cloth over his naked body, and the excerpt concludes by saying that they stayed uh, up that night, and Jesus was teaching him the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty shocking story. And, you know, if your readers sort of were or your hearers were listening to it and thought, gosh, that kind of sounds homoerotic. That almost sounds like Jesus and this young man were in some sort of um, sexual relationship. Well, that's certainly the way that this read in 1960 as well. And Morton Smith didn't, you know, didn't uh, sort of downplay that at all. He made jokes about it saying, boy, you know, if a, uh, if a priest got involved in something like this, they'd they'd sure be in trouble with their bishop. So, you know, for the people who were there, uh, Morton Smith was essentially suggesting that there was this very ancient version of the Gospel of Mark that presented Jesus in a homoerotic relationship. And and Jeff, I mean, as we continue to think about the audience that would have heard this, I mean, you know, um, a lot of times, you know, people 
oppose the Society of Biblical Literature to, you know, organizations like the Evangelical Theological Society or things like that. But uh, in 1960, I mean, uh, there there wasn't nearly as much uh, distinction among scholarly organizations, was there? Yeah, that's right. And um, I would say that Morton Smith, who was uh, agnostic, maybe an atheist, um, but certainly uh, critical of, of uh, conservative Christianity, would have been in the minority at this time. Um, and so back in back at this time, actually, it was called the Society of Biblical Literature and Exegesis, um, which links it even closer to a, a, a sort of a certain kind of fairly conservative Christian reading of the Bible. And um, yeah, the meeting was uh, was largely comprised of um, conservative white male scholars, uh, who many of whom also had um, uh, affiliations or appointments in churches. Well, let's turn to the physical object that Smith was writing about and publishing about. Um, Jeff, I mean, this is not a, a scroll that is crafted in antiquity, but it's a 17th century print era codex book, but it has handwritten Greek on blank pages in the back. So how did that kind of an artifact get connected with a third century Egyptian writer? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. Um, and I think the book is in part an attempt to, to answer that question. Um, and listeners need to go out and get this book. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as, as you said, um, I say, I would say the, the most common way um, to encounter a manuscript of Plato or of um, uh, Homer would be in a papyrus form. Uh, and so uh, that's uh, made of um, sort of organic material. Um, and this was the uh, the dominant sort of preferred um, method of creating paper in um, in ancient Egypt in particular. Um, and there are sort of um, uh, different formats that that papyrus can come in. You can have a book form, like a codex in the modern format, or you can have a scroll. Um, and then uh, and then you also find parchments or uh, books made of animal skin. Um, probably most famously is Codex Sinaiticus, which has the the whole Bible in it, and would have taken a um, you know, dozens of animals uh, to give up their skin to make that book. But yeah, we're dealing with a very different kind of book in this situation. This is, um, as you said, it's a 1600s print edition um, um, published. Um, it, it's uh, it, so it's it's by Isaac Voss, uh, and it's got the letters um, of Ignatius in it, who's another early Christian writer. And then at the end, there's two and a half pages of, of sort of end pages that you often have at the end of a book that are just blank. And on two and a half pages uh, is written um, in a what we think is an 18th century hand, uh, uh, this so-called uh, letter of Clement to Theodore. And this uh, so the the text purports to be written by Clement, as Brent said, uh, uh, we know Clement very well to a guy named Theodore. There's a lot of Theodores. We're not sure which Theodore it is, um, but it, it has in it those excerpts of the um, secret gospel of Mark. Now, it's uh, it's it might sound far-fetched uh, to connect uh, something this late to an early Christian writer from the late second century, uh, but the truth is, is that you have all different kinds of scenarios um, that, that, that appear when you're dealing with the preservation of ancient literature. Um, there's a, a famous case that we talk about in the book of the uh, letter to Diagnetus, which was um, not known um, to have survived um, or not known from the ancient uh, sources. Nobody mentions it. Um, but what was it, the 16th century, Brent? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, someone sees a fishmonger wrapping fish and among the papers is a copy of this epistle to Diagnetus. And so he saves it and gives it to experts and then it gets published uh, sadly, uh, it then gets destroyed uh, uh, during war. So we no longer have this manuscript, but we do have different transcriptions of it, although it was prior to photography, so we don't have any images of it. So that's a that's a probably an extreme case of, of how manuscripts, um, the, the, the strange circumstances that can lead to the preservation of ancient literature. And in this case, it, it seems that, um, you know, Morton Smith himself um, just sort of guesses that maybe they were low on paper at a certain point in the monastery's history. And so these uh, monks were just writing manuscript material, as Smith calls it, on the end pages of 
print volumes. And so this is the this isn't the only example of a book like this at Marsaba. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the things that I often have to remind my own students, I teach some uh, Anglo-Saxon literature classes, uh, is that, you know, writing materials are just prohibitively expensive until very, very recent history. So, uh, you know, the measures that people go to in order to, you know, to use an anachronistic term, recycle their writing materials are often, Mm -hmm. you know, just very extreme. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and we have examples also in the papyri of recycled uh, material. I mean, um, a lot of, not a lot, but several of our early New Testament manuscripts are written on the backside of rolls of sort of secular Greek literature, um, or there's documents written on the other side. And and, and so you can imagine that, um, you know, you can save a buck if you actually just grab a, an old scroll and reuse it right on the back. So reuse is, is common throughout the history of, of, of book culture. Absolutely. All right, Brent, I'm going to issue a challenge here. Uh, Are you up for a challenge? Uh, I think so. (laughs) I want you to give our listeners a taste of the procedures that Morton Smith undertakes in order to determine the likely dating of the artifact and the implied letter and the implied secret gospel, but not so much that our listeners don't go out and get your book. All right. So that is your task. Go to it. Okay, so uh, you have to sort of imagine that Smith is back in his little uh, uh, guest room at the monastery. He has gone and uh, gotten he's he, he's done working in the tower library for the day. He's got a number of interesting books in the uh, in his uh, in his little room that have manuscript material written in, in the back. And he's looking at one that is in a very, uh, uh, very ornate, very um, uh, complex uh, late Greek hand, um, probably of the, you know, he doesn't know exactly when the book itself was published, but he probably would have guessed mid, you know, mid 17th century. So the hand, you know, just by logic has to be a little bit later than that. The first, uh, the first thing he has to do is actually decipher the handwriting, and this is um, not an easy task uh, 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 for readers. Uh, we've we've got some pictures, uh, and and that's a good reason to buy the book, if nothing else, just so you can see what the manuscript itself looks like. That's good, uh, Brett. Have, keep keep yeah. pitching. Keep pitching. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it it is it is an incredibly detailed Greek. Hand. So he first has to decipher the handwriting. Then he has to translate the Greek. The, uh, by that point, he knows that it is purporting to be a letter of Clement with a fragment of the secret gospel of Mark. Then he has to kind of go out in a couple different directions. He has to get a, a more accurate assessment of when the handwriting is from. And that's actually something that he has to kind of outsource to um, specialists uh, in late Greek handwriting. So he has to send them some, you know, uh, photos of of the uh, of the manuscript. And you know, this is not, uh, you know, there's there's no email, there's no um, PDFs in 1958. So he's doing that. He is um, trying to determine whether or not uh, this is an authentic letter of Clement of Alexandria. He's looking at, you know, kind of other stuff that Clement has, has written and trying to figure out, okay, how, how similar in terms of word usage is this? Um, So he's, he's going in that direction. He is uh, uh, also, you know, working on the fragment and trying to figure out, okay, so if Clement says that this is a, you know, uh, secret, version of the gospel of mark how old could it potentially be uh is it is it something that you know may have originated in the second century when there were lots of re- apocryphal rewritings and expansions of of gospels including the gospel of mark um or is it possible you know uh, as clement believed that this is actually a you know that this alternative version of of the gospel of mark goes back to mark himself goes back to the first century so uh, and and in addition to that, then he's also uh, attempting to determine whether or not this uh, fragment from the secret gospel of Mark that interprets Jesus, you know, that presents Jesus in this homoerotic relationship, uh, he has to determine 
whether or not that has any sort of connection, uh, relevance for the historical Jesus. So uh, he's got a lot of work ahead of him. And uh, he discovers this in 1958. Um, and his uh, copy, uh, his, his publication of it uh, doesn't take place until uh, 1973, I think. Uh, and, you know, part of that is sort of the delay with typesetting and some, you know, debates over where it was going to be published and things like that. But it's also, um, you know, it it's it's it was a lot of work. Um, you know, it 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 really did take uh, more than fifteen years to put something like this together. Right, and Jeff, I mean, he doesn't do this as a solo act either. I mean, he has collaborators. He sends it off to experts. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember the uh, epigraphy experts, but I feel like there are other folks also who had a look at this before he presented it in New York City, right? Yeah, we don't have a comprehensive list of the people he sent it to, um, but he did send it um, um, some of his preliminary work on on the the letter and the gospel fragments to um, several of the leading scholars of the day. Um, and he reports a few of the names. Um, and we also, uh, and you know, the most famous one is probably uh, Arthur Darby Nock, A.D. Nock, who was... Um, a, a, just a, a fascinating character in his own right. He was um, uh, he, he came to to Harvard, I believe, from Cambridge, and he um, he was the youngest full professor at Harvard in Harvard's recent history. Um, and he was an absolute uh, savant, a genius um, when it came to uh, ancient um, sort of Greek and Latin literature. Um, and in many respects, he was a classicist, but he had a special affection um, for um, ancient religion as well. Uh, and, and one of the cool scenes um, in Morton Smith's own book from 1973 is him recounting uh, A.D. Knox's reaction when he gave him the text. And um, it's, a, it's a great scene, and it's something I hope no student of mine ever does to me. But Morton Smith had been working for weeks if not months on this trying to decipher this very difficult 18th century hand and he just gives it to knock uh to try and figure out without prepping him at all and and in the in the book um in in smith's book he reports that ad he just you can see the sort of wheels spinning they're turning knock's head as he's he's reading through this seemingly um um at real time, I mean, he's 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 reading without any issue this very difficult hand, um, and he's placing it in his encyclopedic knowledge of antiquity. And one of the things that's really cool about this is that that Nock did not think Smith was right. Nock thought that it was actually a later apocryphal text, um, meaning that it wasn't actually written by Mark; it was written by or Clement, but somebody writing in the names of Clement and Mark. Um, and um, I mean, it's fascinating to see Knock Knock's mind work, um, but it's also fascinating that Smith decided to report a very important dissenting voice in his own book. Um, and you'll see that not just in the, his popular book—that's the one that reports that recounts Knock's reaction—but uh, also in his Harvard monograph. Um, in in many respects, um, a lot of the clues for our own argument were already we found them in Smith's uh, monograph because he reports dissenting views in parentheses or in brackets um, throughout that book. Um, and so uh, I would say that that Smith's 1960 presentation at the Society of Biblical Literature was probably one of the high, most highly vetted SBL presentations in history. <laughs> Well, I mean, listeners, I mean, the, the story of how these two books come to print is fascinating, but we're not going to have time to get to that today. Uh, but Jeff, I do want to follow up with the reception of that book. So we're moving forward to 1973, the mid-70s more broadly, and a scholar called Quentin Quesnell, I'm going to call him Q squared, uh, he either alleges or outright says, and you can correct me here, that Morton Smith forged the letter to Theodore as a kind of precursor to Sokol's hoax more than 20 years later. So what is the theory of Q squared as to why Morton Smith would forge this? Uh, because it is a bizarre theory. I mean, I'd, I, I, I have a feeling you're trying to present it diplomatically, but it came across as a little bit crazy. Yeah. yeah. 
So I guess we'll, I'll, I'll say a few words about sort of our, our, our archival approach and the sources that we used, and then I'll hand it off to Brent, who was really the one who got into the weeds on this Q squared issue. Um, and so uh, one of the things that was uh, a, a little frustrating is that when Smith um, died, um, he gave explicit, uh, prior to his death, he gave explicit instructions to the um, um, literary executor of his estate to destroy all of his private correspondence. Um, which um, that scholar did. Um, and they were, as we found out, dumped in installments down the trash chute of Morton Smith's uh, Manhattan apartment. Um, so I guess they're out there if anyone wants to go digging. But um, what we're left with um, is uh, a lot of his sort of academic correspondence um, and the correspondence that people um, retained who were writing um, to Smith. And so this book makes use of some, uh, a lot of archival materials that were previously known, but not really brought together to create a full picture of what, of what actually transpired in those decades. Um, and then we also did uncover some new archival material. And the, in the case of the Quentin Quesnel papers, um, these were some papers that were found by, by two scholars um, and published about uh, recently and published about in an article. And so we sort of um, uh, brought these new sources in uh, uh, to um, basically create a, a fairly full portrait of um, of one of Smith's early detractors. So I'll hand it over to Brent here. Yeah. So uh, when Quisnell enters the picture and it's only been, I guess I want to say that uh, this this appears in print in what 1975. Um, so you know Smith uh, Quesnell is corresponding with Smith. You know, really just a, about a year after the book has come out. He is a professor uh, at Smith College um, in in Massachusetts, um, and he's he's just he's sort of an up and coming scholar, um, and. He he has a, a number of questions for for Smith about sort of the circumstances of you know the manuscript discovery, and you know when you first read his uh, the correspondence when you re first read the letters that he wrote to Smith it seems all pretty innocuous but then uh, and and Smith responds to him and is 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 very polite and very generous with you know kind of giving him whatever information uh, he can. But then in 1975, Quesnel comes out with an article where he uh, uh, suggests that this is likely a forgery. And uh, the way that he sort of makes his argument is he appeals to um, uh, to sort of a, a rule book or, or what he calls a rule book. It was a book called Strange New Gospels, uh, which was written by a scholar at the University of Chicago, Edgar Goodspeed. And Strange New Gospels is about sort of uh, forgeries of gospels from the mostly the 19th and early 20th century. So, you know, texts where Jesus went to went to India or, you know, uh, like in a letter of Pontius Pilate or or something like that, uh, you know, personal letter of Pontius Pilate detailing, uh, you know, the uh, the trial of Jesus or, or things like that. And uh, Quesnel so, so holds up Goodspeed's uh, Strange New Gospels and says, OK, on the basis of you know, what what we're sort of learning about. Uh, in this text, uh, you know, there's there's a number of reasons to be really suspicious of um, of of what Morton Smith claims to have discovered here. Uh, and, you know, for one thing, Quesnel seems Morton Smith did a really good job of uh, taking some some good black and white photos of the manuscript. But um, Quesnel really faults him quite a bit for um, not uh, not essentially stealing the manuscript from the library. Basically, Quesnel's perspective seemed to be that, you know, this is an important enough text that you shouldn't have just left it in the Tower Library in, in Marsaba when you were done with it. Um, and Smith was sort of like, well, it wasn't mine. <laughs> like it was the it was the property of the monastery. I was there as as their guest. So um so what Quisnell kind of does is is says you, you know there's just not enough documentation of this that the photographs 
aren't good enough and that the photographs in theory could have been taken anywhere. And he says that, you know, until Morton Smith publishes, um, you know, gives us more information, I think we have to assume that this is a modern forgery. Now, he doesn't, you know, uh, come right out and say that Smith is the one who's responsible, but then he sort of does, he, he insinuates it by going into, you know, some stuff that Smith has written and and making it sound as if, um, you know, Smith maybe had this, this idea uh, all along. The other thing is that um, uh, Quesnel doesn't give any indication in the article that he's, you know, troubled or disturbed by the content of the text. Uh, this homoerotic relation, uh, th this depiction of a homoerotic encounter between Jesus and a young man. Um, Quisnell denied that that was anything that he was, you know, kind of troubled by. But then you read uh, uh, a sort of a review of the book that he wrote for a more popular sort of Catholic newspaper. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's clear that for Quesnel, the gay Jesus part was the thing that was really, uh, really upsetting. So, you know, some of what Quesnel does is is not, you know, sort of inappropriate for scholars, but some of it is, uh, you know, definitely disingenuous. And he he is the person who, you know, sort of makes it fair game to kind of go into Smith's um, own writings and sort of psychoanalyze him and say, oh, you know, this guy is coming up with, you know, this really deviant theory. Right, right. And and it occurred to me, uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with Sokol's hoax, it happens about a decade after this encounter. And it was a physics professor who wrote a, a fraudulent article basically for a uh, postmodern uh, social science journal. And then several months later, you know, published a uh, gotcha piece saying, you know, well, clearly these uh, humanities idiots will publish anything because, you know, I wrote this fraudulent article. So, you know, what, honestly, what struck me about this uh, is that, you know, Q squared, uh, you know, comes up with this theory independent of so of Sokol's hoax and, you know, in a completely different field. So um, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know what's in the water at those academic conferences, but there's some uh, conspiracy thinking going on. And, you know, you can come up with some examples like that of, of Sokol's hoax. And, you know, one of the interesting things is, is like, I mean, with, with Sokol, like he, you know, he comes clean shortly after it's published. And I think that's one of the, one of the problems with the forgery hypothesis is particular, particularly the way that Quesnel lays it out. He, he suggests in his article that this was some sort of test, you know, designed to, uh, to to figure out how you know smart and on the ball his his fellow biblical scholars are, and you know if that was the intention and if Smith you know forged it for that reason, then you would have expected Smith to sort of come clean a, a little bit later and say, hey, gotcha, you know, I mean that's that's what that's why what Sokol did, uh, you know, that was the whole point of of you know it. it it doesn't make any sense to, you know, deposit this, this, you know, kind of this, this hoax and then not actually sort of own up to it. Uh, but that's the, that's the tricky thing about Morton Smith's discovery is, you know, all these people who think that, you know, he was this sort of evil genius who left all sorts of clues behind that he, he forged it. Well, if that's the case, then why did he never come clean? Right. And I, I think to the, um, it's it's also interesting that um, that that Quentin Quesnel's major criticism of one of his major criticisms of Smith was that he um, did not try to make the manuscript accessible. But Quentin Quesnel, we have found out, was the last person to actually see the manuscript, and um, this was information that was sort of known but kind of buried in an academic tome. Um, and then really came out um, when these two scholars um, uh, got the papers of Quesnel uh, from Smith College. And uh, it turns out that um, the manuscript was accessible. You just had to fly to Jerusalem and uh, ask to see it. Now, what Quesnel did, and, and it's interesting that he didn't make this more public, in 1983, his 1983 visit with the manuscript. But what he did is he went down to the Jerusalem Patriarchate Library, which is where the manuscript was transferred to 
it was transferred from Marsaba to Jerusalem in the Patriarch's Library. And he basically barged in and demanded to see the manuscript. And uh, they uh, they told him to go back, go outside and come back in with a better attitude. And he did. And they allowed him to sit down with the manuscript for several days. Um, and what's interesting looking through his papers is that, you know, he's writing letters to his um, to his wife. And that's another very interesting part of the story. Part, parts of it we ended up cutting from the book. Um, but he's writing letters to his wife talking about the process of sitting down with the manuscript and trying to determine whether this is actually an executable hand. And you see in his notes, he, he's trying to emulate the style of handwriting himself. Um, so Quisnell is an interesting character for a number of reasons, but you know it's commendable that he is um, one of a few scholars who actually went out there and tried to find it. And he is the, the one who was, um, um, I guess the the last one to see it, so he was actually successful in seeing it. So I think kudos to Quisnell for actually doing that. But it's interesting that he did not share that more widely before he died. Right, right, listeners. There is so much going on in this section of the book, and you're going to have to go out and read it because we've got to get to the Bart Ehrman chapter. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, if you had told me before I read your book that a volume narrating contest between biblical scholars was going to make Bart Ehrman one of the villains. I would have thought it must be coming from the Evangelical Theological Society side of the academic aisle, uh, but you guys seem uh, pretty solidly Society of Biblical Literature to me. How did Bart Ehrman become a bad guy in this story? All right. Well, so <laughs> I'm going to hand this one over to Brent for a couple of reasons. One, Brent actually knows Bart a lot better than I do. Um, and two, um, uh, Brent is the one who really wanted to push this argument, which I fully agree with. Um, but Brent is the one who articulated this. So I'll hand it over to Brent. And it's a very, very good, very good, very interesting uh, moment in, in the in the sort of uh, unfolding of the dramatic narrative of the book. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, this this was interesting because, um, you know, I was what I was trying to do was trying to sort of you know and i and i started with was with quesnell one of my main tasks for the book was essentially trying to document as as fully as i possibly could the history of the forgery arguments so who argues it's a forgery when do they argue it when um you know what 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 are their main pieces of of evidence for this so I was I was trying to do that. And, you know, you get 1973 with uh, or 74, 75 with uh, with Quesnell. Then you get uh, some stuff going on with Jacob Neusner, uh, who we might talk a little bit about later in in the late uh, in the in the early 1990s, uh, right about the time of Smith's death. And then in. The early 2000s, you have two very high profile books that are published uh, by one by Stephen Carlson and one by Peter Jeffrey that are both in their own way trying to make the argument for uh, for Smith forging this. And I just found myself puzzled by where did these two, you know, authors come from? You know, again, was there something in the water? Like why why all of a sudden, you know, in, in 2003? And I think in in the process of doing the sort of literature review, I don't remember exactly how I how I sort of made the connection, but I thought, okay, well, I know that there's some discussion of this um, of of the Secret Gospel of Mark in one of Bart Ehrman's earliest um, uh, sort of books uh, books on biblical studies for a more popular, more general audience. Uh, so. Uh, in when was it? Oh, uh, 2000, 2002, I guess it was. He published Lost Scriptures, which was sort of a collection of primary texts of apocryphal writings. And he included alongside as a companion volume, Lost Christianities, where he talked about, you know, sort of some of the the, the history behind these texts and how they came into being and and all of that stuff. And he has a chapter in there on Secret Gospel of Mark. And I was like, okay, well, hopefully this will, you know, give me a sense of like where, where, where's this forgery stuff cropping up. And what I realized, uh, perhaps I had forgotten it before, was that Airman was really skeptical 
uh, of uh, of Morton Smith's story about uh, Secret Gospel of Mark, and that uh, that in in that chapter in Lost Christianities, he came very very close to uh, insinuating that Smith had forged it. You know, cited some of the uh, pieces, um, some of the uh, points that Quesnel had made favorably. Uh, he also referenced his um, uh, his his doctoral dissertation advisor, Bruce Metzger, uh, who had also been quite um, you know quite skeptical of of Smith. So all of a sudden, I'm realizing, wait a minute. Airman, who is, you know, uh, this is still a couple of years before he really gets, you know, super duper popular, but he's he's already got kind of a following and, and you know, biblical scholars are paying attention to him. He's not doing Colbert Report yet, just yet. Yeah, he's not doing Colbert Report just yet, but he's, you know, he's a couple of years away from that. But I realized in, in reading the, um, you know, his his chapter from Lost Christianities on the Secret Gospel of Mark, that it was like, okay, this is the missing link. This is the thing that uh, I think both Jeffrey and Carlson, Carlson was actually uh, uh, a doctoral student who, uh, who was supervised at least in part by airmen, that this was the thing that they had, um, you know, this, this was the thing that I think had piqued their interest and had encouraged them to go down uh, go down this track of all right, where you know what what other evidence can we find that uh, Smith was responsible uh, for for this forgery? So that's what I ended up with, and I think I probably you know because we we traded a bunch of messages back and forth. I think I probably said to Jeff at the time like, oh boy, more, <laughs> you know Bart Ehrman is actually sort of responsible in large part for you know how this how this forgery theory you know got got so much momentum in the early 2000s and i felt bad about that because of the fact that um uh ever since i was a up-and-coming doctoral student bart Ehrman has been very generous with me and just you know has has always been you know kind of a helpful sounding board and uh and has uh you know just uh uh you know take taken a taken a fair amount of time to you know give give me uh answers and responses and ideas when he wouldn't really have to do any of that so right you know, he's been on this show and he was nothing but generous here as well so yeah i, mean, yeah, he's, I, mean, I definitely he's resonate with that he's an absolutely wonderful guy and so i feel you know, I, I feel uh, really uncomfortable about the fact that he, you know, becomes such a major player in this book. But I mean, for me, part of it was about, you know, that's how you make sense of you, you need a paper trail. And for, you know, for the forgery argument, it turned out that, wow, he actually was uh, was was quite influential uh, when you know, in terms of inspiring Carlson and Jeffrey. Right. And, and one of the uh, sort of subplots of the book um, is is sort of lineage and pedigree. <clears throat> and um, it's a theme that comes up again and again. Um, and, you know, it, it there's there's lineage and pedigree with um, Marsaba, right? There's St. Sabas, uh, who had his own personality and his own uh, sort of disposition. And then that's sort of inherited and wrestled with among the monks who, um, you know, subsequent generations of monks in Marsaba. There's um, the sort of uh, Harvard lineage of people who studied um, with Helmut Kester, who was very close to Morton Smith and shared many of, of Morton Smith's ideas uh, about the secret gospel of Mark. And in the book is, you know, Brent and I both worked with Helmut Kester. Brent as a as a master's and a doctoral student, me as a master's student. And, and the book is, in a way, our attempt to kind of break from that lineage um, a little bit with, while also um, recognizing that we are indebted to it. Um, but, but then Bart also has a lineage, and that lineage goes through Princeton Seminary and Bruce Metzger. Right. And, and, and before we started the uh, recording, listeners, uh, Brent and Jeff, I realize now, uh, caught me name-dropping on that lineage as well. So carry on. <laughs> right. And and so um, Bruce Metzger, um, I think there's a, a small inaccuracy in the book that we're going to probably correct in a, a subsequent printing if, if we are lucky enough to have one. 
uh, was actually one of the initial people that Morton Smith sent his work to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and, uh, and then he also was involved, I believe in the Columbia seminar, which was this group of scholars that would meet in, in New York and discuss works in progress. Uh, and so he was around Smith, Smith and Smith's work from the beginning of this whole saga. And we don't know the full story, but, um, there must've been some amount of discomfort, um, that Bruce Metzger experienced hearing again and again Smith pushing some, from his perspective, somewhat problematic lines of argumentation. But he also would have been in the room for several of Smith's jokes. Uh, Smith was known for his often off-color jokes, uh, and this probably um, made Bruce Metzger a little uncomfortable. In any case, Bruce Metzger um, was um, was uh, one of the sort of uh, mentors or advisors uh, to to Bart Ehrman. So we think this is the lineage. Um, and and Bruce Metzger also had his his own view on Secret Mark that he published about, but also other forgeries um, um, that he was aware of. So it 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 sort of complicates the narrative a little bit, and that's to have Bart Ehrman um, kind of being on you know the other side of things. But I, I think. What one of the things we're trying to illustrate in the book is just how complicated this is, but how ideas and arguments are embedded in um, in pedigrees. Absolutely. Absolutely. And listeners, I mean, again, the uh, sections of the book on the Carlson book and on the Jeffrey book are also fascinating uh, in the name of uh, or na- not in the name of who am I, Bono, uh, you know, uh, in the interest of time, that's the cliche I was reaching for. Uh, I'm going to leave that to our listeners to dig into once they get the book, because I'm going to indulge myself and uh, ask a question of uh, personal curiosity. So, uh, Brent, I mean, this book does not proceed as any other book of biblical studies I've read. And if I had to describe the the shape and the structure of this book, I'd call it a courtroom drama. I mean, you've got the surprise witnesses. You've got the uh, shocking evidence. You've got the uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Not quite that, but pretty close. So uh, here's my question. How inadvertent and how intentional was the Aaron Sorkin flavor of this book? And does that make you the defense attorney? And if it does, do you want answers? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I appreciate the question. I I appreciate being, you know, uh, us us being mentioned in the same breath with with someone like Aaron Sorkin. Um, you know, I I would not say I wouldn't say that we we were certainly aware that the book could, you know, have that sort of courtroom drama or mystery novel, you know, type feel to it. I don't know that that was necessarily something that we tried to play up. You know, it was it, it was sort of it was kind of there from from the get go. Uh, um, and and really part of it, you know, in terms of how we how we structured the book, you know, part of it was about starting. Uh, I would say I know that the book doesn't proceed chronologically, but it's sort of did for us, not entirely, but, you know, I mean, we spend a lot of time in those, you know, first several chapters sort of going through, you know, what, uh, how Smith makes his discovery, what he does, does thereafter. Then we go into the forgery arguments that basically proceeds chronologically. And, you know, but then at the end, it sort of kind of goes, goes way back to, to, you know, ancient Marsaba. And tries to uh, come up with a you know kind of a plausible scenario for how this thing could have been composed if it wasn't a you know 20th century forgery by Morton Smith and if it wasn't a first century authentic alternative version of the Gospel of of Mark. Um, so you know uh, we appreciate the you know the um, uh, the kind words about sort of the 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 structure of the book. I would say for for us, it seemed, I'm not sure that we necessarily ever thought about a really different way of, of arranging it. This just seemed sort of like the, the most straightforward way. And again, I think it proceeds largely chronologically, but then, you know, kind of bounces around a little bit. It was, um, 
you know, it was it was about finding, I guess, a narrative flow. And and for us, you know, a narrative flow tended to work pretty well chronologically. All right, yeah. Jeff, I, I'm going to press just a little bit because, I mean, sure. th this book seems like it's in Morton Smith's corner, is it? Um, I gained a lot of respect for Morton Smith in the process of researching and writing this book. Uh, I will say that if I had um, an assumption coming into this, well, one, I never really thought too much about the secret gospel of Mark. But two, the reason I probably never did is I just assumed it was a forgery. Um, and this, uh, I remember having a few conversations with Helmut Kester about it, and it was clear that he, he did not think it was a forgery, but it was also clear that there was some weird energy surrounding this controversy and that I didn't. He said ever, a mouthful there, man. <laughs> I didn't ever want to get involved. That was clear. Um, but, but, and I'm not sure I've made the right decision at this point, but, but I, but I, I, I will say that in the process of of reading hundreds of pages of Morton Smith's um, unpublished materials and and you know even more of his published materials, I have gained a tremendous amount of respect for the amount of time uh, he put in to absolutely every sentence that he wrote. Uh, there is a mountain of research behind each sentence, um, and I, I I disagree with him. I mean, um, you know, there's some people who have been suspicious of, say, like the last sentences or last paragraphs of the of the Harper book and the and the um, the the Harvard monograph, where Smith might be, you know, depositing what what we've called in the book another breadcrumb, hinting at the fact that he he doesn't even buy what he's saying. But to me, it reads like a very careful historian who realizes that at points he's overplayed his hand. He has pushed the historical evidence a little bit farther than he's comfortable with, but he's done it to provoke. And I get that. I mean, I absolutely understand that. Um, I'm probably a little bit more conservative than him, but there's probably people in the field who would disagree. They probably would see, you know, my work as provocative as his. So I, I've gained a tremendous amount of respect for him. And I, I also will say this, and Brent, I don't know if you ever had this feeling in the course of writing the book, but there were moments where I just desperately wanted Morton Smith at the table with us. Because mm -hmm. I realized that there was nobody else who knew the level, knew the material at this high level that I would like to talk to. I would just like to bounce ideas off him, see how he reacts. Um, and, and because of that, you know, I, 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 I really did enjoy spending time with him in the course of writing this book. So, I, you know, does that mean that I'm, I'm partial? Yeah, probably. But I but 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 Smith's writings engendered that subjectivity within me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would uh, for 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 myself, I would I would very much agree with with what Jeff said. I I wish we had had the opportunity uh, to talk with with Smith. Um, you know, uh, for your readers, I mean, you know, after they order our book, they should really pick up Smith's Secret Gospel and Jesus the Magician. I mean, those two books, like uh, of his, are are just you know fascinating and they're so so well written um so uh yeah that was that was definitely a, a reaction i had um you know i'm i'm glad that we've i'm certainly glad that we published the book and i'm i'm glad uh that uh that we were able to to see it through um there is a, i guess a feeling that i've had of of like oh gosh i wish we could have done this like 10 years ago just because of some of i mean smith died in 91 so you know i was I was listening to Guns N' Roses in high school in 1991. I, you know, as so was I, man, as was I. <laughs> I. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in a position to, you know, do anything with Smith. But um, I just think, for instance, about the fact that the librarian, the former librarian of Marsaba, who in his, uh, so in Quentin Quesnell's diaries from his 1983 trip, uh, this librarian, Kalistos Durvas, told uh, Quisnell that he thought that this was a uh, that this was an authentic text, that it wasn't a modern forgery. Uh, and but he didn't think it was a real letter of Clement. He thought it was, you know, a product of uh, in-house monastic debates of the fifth or the sixth century. And and even better than that, he said that he thought he had seen in some other piece uh, or some other uh, uh, manuscript from the night 
from the 15th or 16th century, he thought he had seen some other references to this, you know, letter of Clement. And, you know, it, I would just, I hope we can have eventually get access uh, to the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate Library and, and hopefully maybe follow up and figure out what Durbas was talking about on some of that stuff. But unfortunately, we can't ask him. He, um, you know, he was actually uh, relieved of his duties at Marsaba under uh, um, rather, you know, sort of, uh, or, or rather at the Patriarchate in Jerusalem under, you know, kind of weird circumstances. He, he spent the rest of his life in a pretty rural village on the Greek border with Bulgaria. And he died in 2016. And, you know, we hadn't even, the the, the book uh, wouldn't come about for another, th uh, you know, the seeds for the book wouldn't come about for another three years. So, uh, but in it, the grand scheme, that is a near miss. It is, it is a very near miss. And, and, you know, so we were, uh, I'm glad we wrote the book when we did, because it allowed us to have uh, access to a number of folks who, uh, who knew Smith quite well. Um, and at least one of these folks, uh, uh, a biblical scholar named James Sanders, who was actually the moderator for Smith's 1960 SBL presentation, he, you know, we had some great conversations with him. And then, you know, he he passed away a couple months after we had talked to him. Well, uh, you've already kind of mentioned it, but I mean, you know, this, this theory that it is a a pseudepigraphal or apocryphal text, probably from the neighborhood of the of the fifth century. Uh, that seems to be, you know, about where the book lands. I mean, uh, why is that neighborhood a more likely uh, site of public or not a publication of composition than either the twentieth century or the first century looks to be? Yeah. So um, basically, um, just to kind of give a little. TLDR on some of the arguments here. Uh, but the, not so much that our listeners won't buy the book. I should also <laughs> mention we have a wonderful audio book um, that's narrated by a really talented um, reader. So there's also that possibility. I'm dealing with prose here, listeners. I'm dealing here with prose. <laughs> Um, and so we think that the letter is a uh, letter um, to Theodore depends on Eusebius. We think the author is because of that can't be Clement, but must be somebody who was living in the sort of late fourth century or later. Um, and there's some technical arguments that the readers can kind of work through, which hopefully we've presented in a clear way. So in, in any case, um, uh, thank you. So in any case, um, we, we that that puts the sort of terminus postquem of the text into the late fourth century. And, you know, we we also contacted several experts in modern Greek handwriting, and they um, there is some variation there, which we report. Um, but there was a strong consensus, I would say, especially when you consider the additional um, people that Smith consulted uh, back in the 50s, that this is a hand um, from the 1700s. So then we've got late fourth century on one hand and then 1700s on the other and then it just becomes a question of where does this text fit historically um and you know while while sort of people tend to talk about the same kinds of things throughout history the terms of the debate shift subtly from generation to generation um and there was just something so so strange about um the, the 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 secret mark text that it was part of a debate about same-sex somethings um but it didn't really fall in line with modern sort of 20th 20 um, you know 20th century conversations about same-sex relationships nor did it really fit you know too well in the context of the new testament although as we argue in the book there are the sort of seeds of this they are already in the gospels um so then we just started reading broadly and um, and um, continually, basically, <laughs> um, until we found a place in time where it really felt like this text was participating in conversations about um, same-sex relationships. Um, and I, I likened it to sort of, you know, a piece of a puzzle where we have a, a fairly good sense of the history of Christianity, of the sort of contours of different debates from century to century. Uh, we have a nearly complete puzzle, but we have a new puzzle piece we found. 
And so each uh, side of the puzzle has unique uh, of the piece has unique sort of contours. And that's the sort of conversations that this text is is aware of and participating in. And so the question became, where does this sort of puzzle naturally, sort of this piece naturally kind of slide into place? And for us, that really felt like late antique Palestinian monasticism, lo and behold, um, Mar Saba itself. Now, um, what, what we mean by that is that that was a place and that was a time in which um, same-sex um, monastic pairs, um, male and female in some instances, were actively trying to figure out what it could mean to live a life of holiness together. Um, and that's a unique chapter in the history of sexuality. And it's one that's only recently um, been studied going back maybe 15, 20 years, which is probably why Smith missed it, to be honest with you, is that when Smith was working on this in the late 50s and the 60s and even into the early 70s, um, there wasn't really even a notion of late antiquity, at least not a robust one like we have today. People were still dealing largely with the narrative of decline that they inherited from Gibbon, uh, that this is just a, a this is a, not a culturally interesting moment. Let's not spend too much time thinking about it. Well, now things are different. Now we have this idea of late antiquity as a robust historical moment in which um, traditional forms and tropes are being reshaped uh, it, you know, in, in many instances by, by Christians, and they take on uh, sort of new expressions. Um, and in addition to that, there's been a lot of work done, in particular after the, the, the years uh, following uh, Foucault's uh, history of sexuality, um, on the, the history of sexuality, particularly in late anti-Christian communities. So any in any case, that's there's a lot more to it, but that's more or less why we end up where we do, is we just, and we have some comparable texts that we found from that era, and we think that 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 so far is the most plausible scenario. However, we also offer the book as an invitation uh, for people to come forward with what they think are even more plausible historical contexts for this text. Um, and, and we're we're open to that as well. Right. And I want to do just a little bit of detail on those debates there in the the fourth, fifth centuries, because, uh, you know, granting that there were definitely erotic relationships between monks and that there were almost certainly sexual relationships between monks. Uh, Brent, I mean, you know, what you all unearthed is that the erotic relationships were ritualized, formalized, and maybe even, uh, you know, for, you know, if, if I'm not going too far here, uh, sacramentalized, whereas, yeah. you know, the, uh, sexual relationships were still strongly discouraged. So I, again, don't, I, I've been telling you this all through this episode, but don't give away so much that they won't read the book. But uh, what were some of these ritual enactments of uh, same-sex uh, love? Yeah, I mean, so we've we've got a number of uh, liturgical manuscripts that talk, uh, that that have these sort of instructions for uh, a ritual known as adelphopoesis or brother making. Um, and if I remember correctly, the the you know the manuscripts and the sort of the actual liturgies we have are a smidge later than the you know kind of historical context that we're zeroing in on in the book. Uh, they're like eighth century and and later. But, you know, so even if we don't actually have these formalized liturgies, we have plenty of uh, of um, monastic texts uh, from the fifth and the sixth and the seventh centuries that describe these sorts of same sex relationships. And so that's, you know, that that's an, an another important piece of this puzzle. Uh, you know, the 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 scholars who, you know, kind of have done significant legwork uh, in in terms of finding finding, you know, kind of primary source documents for these same-sex monastic couples, particularly Derek Kruger and Claudia Rapp, you know, they've they've done their work mostly in the last, I don't know, 10 years, 10 or 15 years. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's fairly new in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of sort of differentiating the, you know, the sexual or, or the erotic versus, versus sexual, some of the, some of the, uh, 
you know, kind of reports we read from monastic literature sound very erotic, you know, that they're talking about themselves as, you know, one soul and two bodies. And, you know, that when they have to, you know, uh, leave each other for some period of time, you know, they're weeping and they're kissing each other. And, you know, um, so it can all sound, um, yeah, pretty, pretty homoerotic. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of these, you know, same-sex monastic pairs, or even most of them, were uh, actually were sexually active with each other. Um, you know, we do have, and, to and it certainly doesn't mean that there was a sanction for sexual mm -hmm. relationships between monks. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I would say that even you know even see the secret gospel of Mark seems to be sort of drawing the line and saying, okay, well, you know, there's, um, you, you know, there there is this relationship and it's and it's very very close um but you know there's there's but it but it's all erotic there's nothing that you know suggests to to me that the the person who was responsible for penning this composition was actually involved in a sexual relationship and i think we have to i think we have to take seriously the you know the um frequent admonitions and and sort of the ideal of chastity of you know kind of sexual continence that that sort of even though it's hard for us to imagine, that sort of coexisted alongside of these very sort of erotic, very emotionally uh, deep relationships. Well, guys, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you two have the last word. So I'm going to hand the baton to Jeff and then Jeff can hand it to Brent. Uh, but what do you want our listeners thinking about epigraphy, Morton Smith, or whatever else as we head for the door? Jeff, take it away. Yeah, I mean, two two points here. Um, one is the point that I've already made, but I want to underscore it, is that we we did not write this book to end the conversation. We We wrote this book to recalibrate it because we think that the sort of the two primary entrenched camps, those who think that it's um, a first or early second century um, um, variant of Mark's gospel and those who think that Morton Smith uh, forged it for whatever reason. We think both of those are dead ends. Um, now, maybe somebody finds a letter that Smith wrote where he admits to forging it. I'm open to that. But none of the evidence that I have seen, that Brent has seen for either of those two arguments is that compelling. So what we wanted to do is figure out, well, what the heck is this thing? Um, and so the book is in large part an invitation um, for scholars who are experts in late antiquity, maybe scholars who are experts in um, uh, um, Greek orthodoxy uh, or monasticism in the early modern period um, to join the conversation and give us some fresh ideas that are compelling. Um, the second thing I want to say is that, you know, I, I hope readers, and this is more for lay readers or armchair historians, I, I hope readers get a sense of the thrill that Brent and I feel when we do academic research. You know, I, I don't think this is a courtroom drama. At least I, I you know, I, I, we didn't write it that way. I think we wrote it um, to give readers a sort of very palpable sense of why it is we do what we do. Um, and there's a reason why this, this, this book is dedicated to Francois Bavon. And so I think that Brent and I both learned um, learned how to um, sort of um, um, sort of lean into that thrill and that excitement of doing historical research largely from Francois Bavon. Mm -hmm. Brent, take it away. Yeah, so I would I would jump in with with two things as well. So uh, the first point that I would make is that you know a lot of I feel like there's been a fair amount of scholarship uh, on the secret gospel of Mark that has, uh, uh, you know, started, you know, started firmly in the forgery camp or the authenticity camp and then has sort of proceeded to uh, make their move from there. Um, and I would say that for us, we we didn't have that sort of very fixed ideological setting. I mean, for us, you know, really, and and it's and it's implicit in that dedication to to Francois Bavon, uh, where we say he 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 told us to start with the manuscript, and that is really where 
where we started was, uh, you know, just looking at the manuscript, looking at this, you know, very complex, uh, complicated Greek hand, uh, cursive Greek hand, and thinking, wait a minute, like, is this really something that Smith would have been capable of forging? You know, and it's helpful to, in this, in that respect, sort of compare it with things like the gospel of Jesus's wife, where, you know, if you've seen, uh, you know, any images of the gospel of Jesus's wife, it's, you know, it, it's not hard. It would not have been hard for, for somebody to write something like that. I mean, that's, those are basically just capital block letters. That is not, you know, sort of a, uh, an intricate, Greek hand. So I would say on the one hand, you know, just uh, for for people who, uh, you know, people who might think, oh, you know, we're we were solidly on the, you know, pro Morton Smith, pro authenticity side of things before we started. No, really, it was the manuscript. And, and we let sort of the manuscript and our observation of the manuscript kind of determine what direction our thesis was going to go in. Uh, the other uh, thing that I would uh, mention is just uh, how how much of a, you know, a group effort a book like this was. Certainly, you know, Jeff and I worked together on it. It's a co-author book. In some ways, we've we've made it more difficult for ourselves by doing it as a co-authored book because neither of us gets the proper academic credit uh, for, you know, uh, for for really what is a, a, you know, fantastic book. But Jeff and I had, you know, done, uh, had, had done work on a number of topics and texts uh, in manuscript studies before. I think we just find that, you know, two brains and two sets of eyes are just, you know, kind of just make the product better. So, you know, that's one way in which this is, you know, kind of a collective effort, but it's also enriched substantially by the fact that we were able to talk to so many people who knew Morton Smith and uh, were friends and colleagues with him uh that you know that that i think has really uh enriched our book and makes it stand out from you know books that just sort of operate on the you know forgery or authenticity side of things but don't actually you know spend a lot of time talking to people who knew smith brent landau jeff smith thank you for coming on christian humanist profiles thank you thank you listeners thank you for downloading for listening in the book is The Secret Gospel of Mark from Yale University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.